holes. And turn with me to the book of Romans. Caitlin, thank you for serving us this morning. Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans in chapter 6 as we come to a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of this great epistle, this great letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians who were in Rome. And our verses this morning are verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. So let's read there. This is the Word of God. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Well, let's begin this morning by remembering those Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone by the very finger of God. Let's remember that Mosaic law given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. The law was precious to the Jews of Paul's day. And yet Paul has just been teaching that in actuality, the law has no part in making people sinners or in bringing sinners to salvation. That is, when you think about the big thing that God is doing in this world, saving sinners through Jesus Christ, Paul has basically said that the law has no essential part to play. It has a part, but not an essential part. People were sinners before the law of Moses was given. He said that back in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5. From Adam to the days of Moses when the law was given, people weren't walking around perfect. They were sinners. They were guilty before God. Their hearts were hostile towards God. This was a result of the curse because when Adam sinned against God in the garden, humanity sinned and brought upon themselves hearts that were dead to God. In other words, all humanity became guilty before God long before the Ten Commandments were given. What's more, the law not only was the instrument by which we became sinners, but the law was also not the instrument by which we become saved. In fact, back in Romans 3.20, Paul said, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You cannot be made right with God by law-keeping. Salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is our righteousness before God. And so at this point, the Jews are scratching their heads. If people didn't become sinners by the law, and if salvation isn't by the law, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give 
those commandments at Mount Sinai? What's the big deal about you shall have no other gods before me? Well, the answer to that is given in the last two verses of chapter 5 that we saw last week. That God gave the law to increase man's guilt. People had committed adultery before the Ten Commandments were given. But now, anyone who committed adultery did so against the express will of God clearly stated for all to see. Yes, they had always known that these things were wrong in their hearts. The Ten Commandments were written in the hearts of men from from the beginning, but our sinful natures work hard to suppress God's moral commands. We don't want God telling us what to do by nature. And yet now, by giving us the law on tablets of stone, nobody could deny what the will of God was. And therefore, when you sinned, you sinned against the blatantly revealed will of God, and therefore your sin was all the more heinous before God, and therefore man became all the more guilty before God. Which raises the question, why would God want to make us more guilty? Why would God want to make the situation worse? rather than better. The answer that we saw last week was that God gave the law and made our situation worse so that His grace could abound all the more. That is, God's goal in all of human history is to express before His own eyes, before the angels in heaven, before all His people, He wants to express the wonders of His grace. God is seeking to put His character on display for His enjoyment and the enjoyment of all who have the capacity to see and delight. In salvation, God's desire is to especially showcase His marvelous grace. Now, if God's desire is to show just how merciful He is, then the best way for Him to show the depths of His mercy is for His mercy to cover Great depths of guilt. God gave the law and increased man's guilt so that he would express all the more the wonders of his grace. Through Jesus, God is not just saving people who have slightly offended him. God is saving people who have greatly offended him. Through Jesus, God is not taking away a small amount of guilt. God is taking away a Mount Everest of guilt. Through Jesus, God is not forgiving us of little crimes. He's forgiving us of infinitely heinous crimes. God gave the law so that His grace would be all the more amazing. Now, that's where we left off last week. And in response to that argument, Paul can hear somebody saying, Oh then, I guess Christians should just keep on sinning. After all, if we keep on sinning, that will allow God's grace to cover even more sins. You want to show how great God's mercy is? Christian, go sin. Let's sin all the more that grace may abound. Let's glorify God by sinning. What do you think about that logic and those statements? You see it in verse 1. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And we see Paul's very clear answer. By no means. 
King James Version says, God forbid. And the rest of these verses are Paul explaining why that logic is so wicked and twisted and distorted. We must not say, let us sin all the more that grace may abound. God's grace is not just glorified by sins being forgiven. God's grace is glorified when we see it turn sinners into saints. It is God's grace turning wicked people into holy people that makes it all the more astounding. I know the kind of person you used to be, and now you're like that? That's amazing grace. It is the transforming power of grace that makes it all the more amazing. Now what I want to do to unpack the way he argues this in verses 2, 3, and 4 is I want us to see seven points, some today, some next week. So if you'll follow along, there will be seven points over the next two weeks in these three verses that I want to bring out. Here's point number one, and it is the main point. It is the main thing that Paul is saying in these verses. And here it is. Christians have died to sin. Christians have died to sin. God's grace does not simply bring us forgiveness. When we are born again and believe on Jesus and are counted right with God in that moment, our relationship to sin changes. We are now dead to sin. Verse 2. See it in verse 2? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul was asking a question about a paradox. Remember Aristotle's famous statement, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same relation. If I am continuing to sin, sin still has a hold on my heart. If I am continuing to live in sin, then I am continuing to freely give myself to the service of sin. I'm not freed. I'm a slave. I'm not dead to sin. I'm still alive to sin. You can't be dead to sin and live in it. And so those who argue that we should go on sinning don't even understand what a Christian is. Here's points number two. Point number two. A Christian's death to sin is an objective reality. A Christian's death to sin is an objective reality. Paul does not command us in this verse to die to sin. He doesn't say die to sin. He says you are dead to sin. He's telling you something about yourself. This is an indicative, not an imperative. This is not a command. This is a statement of fact. If you are a true child of God, you are dead to sin. And these two things always go together. Being a Christian and being dead to sin. You cannot follow Jesus and live in sin. It's two opposites. You can't go right and left at the same time. Jesus leads one way, holiness. Sin leads another way, death and hell. You can't go both. Listen carefully to these statements. They're objectively true. 
If you are a Christian, you have died to sin. If you are not a Christian, you have not died to sin. If you have died to sin, you are a Christian. And if you have not died to sin, you are not a Christian. These things are fundamentally connected to one another. God's grace is given to us. God's grace given to us in Jesus transforms us so that we now desire Jesus. We desire to please Jesus. We desire to follow Jesus. Sin no longer has sovereignty over our hearts. We have thrown off our love for sin. We've tasted something better. We've tasted something higher. Let the world chase after fleshly indulgence. We want to be like our Savior. My question to you is this. Is that you? Is this what you have experienced in your own life? Now, what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, I would suggest that in some ways we can figure out what it means to be dead to sin by thinking about what it meant to be dead to God, right? The Bible says that before we were saved, we were dead to God, right? But now we're alive to God and we're dead to sin. So if we can figure out what it meant to be dead to God, we can now figure out what it was to be dead to sin. By the way, look ahead to verse 11. And you'll see Paul wants us to think this way. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. So what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, when we were dead to God... There was hostility between us and God. And so here's the third point I want to give you. To be dead to sin means there's hostility between us and sin. There is hostility between us and sin. We used to be pals with sin. We used to enjoy sin. The sins that were my favorites Maybe different from the sins that were your favorites, but we all had our favorites. What were the sins you used to love and enjoy? Every time you indulged in that sin, you were rebelling against God. You were expressing hostility towards God. Your heart loved the sin, was in cooperation with the sin, was a pal with the sin. And as you palled around with sin, you rebelled against God and revealed hostility towards God. And now, by the grace of God, a change has occurred. Your hostility has changed directions and is now directed towards sin. God has begun to open your eyes and to show you sin's true colors. Oh, it's deceitful. Oh, how it promises a good time, but its purpose is to kill you. Its purpose is to harm you. Friends, do we understand that sin is the worst thing in the world? All creation groans for the day when it will be free from the curse of sinners walking on its ground. I've done this before, but I love it. So listen, see if this registers with you. You say death is worse than sin. No friend, death is not worse than sin. There would be no death 
were it not for sin. Every tear shed for the death of a loved one. Every anxious fear ever felt concerning death would never have existed were it not for sin. Death is the wages of sin. Death separates us from our loved ones. But if we are in Christ, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is sin and sin alone that ultimately separates people from God. If sin is not dealt with by finding salvation in Jesus, sin will do what death can never do, separate us from the love of God. Well, I think Satan is worse than sin. Dear friend, Satan is not worse than sin. The only thing that makes Satan so vile is that he is full of sin. He has sinful desires, sinful plans, sinful methods, sinful acts. Take the sin out of Satan and he would again be a righteous angel in heaven, not a writhing worm in hell. It is sin and sin alone that makes Satan a horrendous serpent. I think hell is worse than sin. But dear friend, hell is not worse than sin. In fact, hell only exists because of sin. And hell, as awful as it is, is a righteous place. It was created by God to display His own just and good anger against what? Against sin. You see, the reason that death and Satan and hell exist is because of sin. It is the worst of all evils. And so I ask you, would you be friends with such a thing as sin? Will you treat it lightly? Would you make peace with such a thing? When we are born again, that is, when we are given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, we begin to understand these things. We are not yet at the place of utterly hating sin the way we ought. But the seed of holiness, the seed of of loving good and hating evil, it has been planted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and it is being cultivated by the Spirit of God and it is growing within us and we do not look at sin the way we used to. We are learning to run from it. We are learning to fight it. We are learning to fling it off of us like a viper who doesn't want to let us go. And as we learn to fling sin off, we want to stomp its head in the dust. We wait for the day when sin will lay dead at our feet. Number four, when we were dead to God, we refused to do His will. And so I take that to mean that if we're dead to sin, we now refuse to do the will of sin. Sin used to boss us around so easily. The temptation just showed itself and we we jumped. But now we have a better master. We have surrendered ourselves to Christ who has far better plans for us than sin did. Jesus leads to heaven. So we trust Christ and we refuse to bow the knee to sin. 
Now, of course, this is still a process. We've not yet learned to recognize every sin in our hearts, and therefore we've not yet learned to hate every sin in our hearts. Our flesh is still at work, battling our pure desires, trying to make us disobedient to Jesus. But the crucial thing, the fundamental thing, has already happened. The seed has been planted, and obedience to Jesus is growing in us if we are a Christian. Sin's reign, it's over. So I was thinking about this. I thought about all of these revolutions that are taking place in the Middle East. How you may have a king who's in power. And the king is giving orders. But suddenly there's a lot of people not listening to the king anymore. They've decided that their king is abusing them. Doing them harm. That the way they've been living, they will not live that way anymore. And so they're revolting. They've sniffed another way of life. They long to overthrow the king and set up another form of government. And in fact, it's happening. The king is still giving orders, still trying to get the people to do his will, but they are no longer obeying. Now the king may send out his armies and people are dying and there is suffering. And the king is doing everything he can to hold on to power, but it's too late. Revolution is coming. He's lost his rule. And that's how it is with sin in our hearts. Oh, sin is doing everything it can to try and take its throne back from Christ. But it's too late. If you are a true child of God, sin will never prevail. Our flesh, you know this, is still trying to give us orders. Did you hear what that person said about you? Oh, say what you want to say. Did you see that accomplishment of yours? That was excellent. You should boast about that. Do you want to indulge in this sin? It's not that big a deal. Just do it this once. More and more, we are no longer taking orders from the flesh. Its power over us is diminishing. We are learning to say no. We are learning self-control. We are learning to deny self in order to have greater pleasure in obedience to Jesus Christ. We are living in the reality that Jesus loves us and gave Himself for us. And in light of that love, how can I sin against my Savior? This is what it means to be dead to sin. Now, how did we get this way? How did Christians begin to experience this change? What brought this about? Well, here's point number five. Christians became dead to sin by being united to Christ. Christians became dead to sin by being united to Christ. The language of unity, of union to Christ, is all over these verses. Look at verses 2 through 4 again and look for union. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, Christians are united to Christ in such a way that what has happened to Christ has happened to us. He died, and He brought about a death in us. 
death to sin, death to our old way of living. He was buried. We've been buried. We'll talk about more what that, what that means in a minute. He's been resurrected. We have been born again and made alive in Christ to walk in newness of life. And so under this fifth point, there's three subpoints: 5A, 5B, 5C. And I'll already tell you what they are. We're united to Christ in His death. We're united to Christ in His burial. We're united to Christ in His resurrection. Let's take them very quickly. 5A, Christians have been united to Christ in His death, bringing to them the destruction of their sin. Let me mention some ways this is true. First, let me remind you that when we talk about being united to Jesus, there are two aspects to this. There is that legal or federal union that we have with Christ. And then there is our spiritual union with Christ. If you are a Christian, you have been legally or federally united to Christ since way before you were born, since the foundations of the earth. Before you even existed, God set His love on you. God determined to save you. God entered into a covenant with Jesus in which Jesus promised to represent you in His life, death, and resurrection. And thereby, in His life, death, and resurrection, He accomplished the forgiveness of your sins so that sin can no more condemn you. The penalty of sin removed. Because Christ was your legal representative at the cross. Here's a huge reason you can walk in newness of life. Dear Christian, God's wrath no longer hangs over you. On the last day when God opens up the books of your life and He sees sin after sin after sin crying out for Him to condemn you, those sins will not prevail. Remember Martin Luther's dream? Martin Luther had a dream in which he was visited by Satan. Satan handed him a long list recording his deeds written in Luther's own hand. And the devil said to him, is that true? All those wicked deeds you've written down that you've done, is that true? Did you write this? Is this your confession of your sins? And in terror, in the dream, Martin Luther confessed that he had written it. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, each one containing lists of all the sins that Luther had ever committed in thought, word, and deed. And finally, Luther was distraught, brought to a state of utter misery, and the devil turned to leave, having accomplished his task. And then suddenly, in the dream, Luther turned to Satan and said, It is true, every word of it, but now right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We live with no more condemnation. No more wrath of God hanging over us. That's because of your legal union with Christ. But we're not only united to Christ legally, we're united to Christ spiritually. That is, when a Christian is born again, Jesus Himself, through the person of the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in us. And in that moment, when the Spirit of God changes my heart and gives me faith, makes my heart His home, then and there, sin's reign, gone forever. Not only am I free from the penalty of sin, now I'm free from the dominion of sin. I'm free from the power of sin over me. How can God do that? How can God bless criminals like us with such an awesome gift? Answer, because of the cross. Jesus went to the cross 
accomplished everything necessary so that we could be counted righteous in God's sight, so that when God sends His Holy Spirit to give us the Holy, to make, put the Holy Spirit inside of us so that He will make us holy, when He blesses us in this way, He is just to do it because we have been counted righteous in His sight. You see, at the heart of my legal union with Christ is the cross, and sin can no longer condemn me. At the heart of my spiritual union with Christ is the cross, and sin no longer reigns over me. And you put all this together, and here's what you have. At the cross, Jesus dealt my sin a fatal blow. Sin will be destroyed in me and in you if you are a true believer. So because Christ died, I have died to sin. 5b. Christians have been united to Christ in His burial, bringing to us a true separation from sin. True separation from sin. Have you ever wondered what the Bible means when it talks about us being buried with Jesus? It's easier to understand what it means when it says that we died with Christ. Jesus' death led to my death to sin. But what does it mean that we were buried with Jesus? Well, the burial of Jesus was the evidence that he was really dead. If Jesus had just remained on the cross, died on the cross, and a few hours later came back to life, still on the cross, nobody would have believed that he actually had died. It was Jesus' burial and all of that process that was gone through that proved Jesus was really dead. And Jesus' burial made way for the resurrection. In baptism, when we go under the water, it is a clear pronouncement that sin's power to condemn us has truly died. Sin's reign over us has truly died. Our allegiance and bondage to sin has been broken. It's the evidence in baptism. I have really, 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 really died to sin. Consider the illustration of marriage. Human beings by nature are married to sin. We are bound to sin for life. It is interwoven into the fabric of our nature. Things could have been different had we chosen God in the garden, but we didn't. We chose sin. And so sin is the constant companion of humanity. We're married to sin. And sin is our husband. And sin is a domineering husband. He makes us bend to his will. He's a terrible husband. Sin leads us down paths that lead us towards hell. If there was ever a marriage to get out of, this is it. Our marriage to sin. We don't want this husband in our lives anymore. But marriage is till death do us part. How do we escape our bondage to sin? Well, through Jesus, we have died to sin and the marriage to sin is over. The relationship is done. We've exchanged one husband through death for a new husband, Christ the Righteous One, and we happily bend to His will because He leads us into everlasting joy. You see, we are united with Christ in burial in the sense that we have truly died and we show it in baptism. Our marriage to sin is truly over. We've parted ways. Finally, Christians have been united to Christ in His resurrection, bringing to us the newness of life. Verse 4 is very clear. Look at verse 4 again. 
We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The glory of the Father is his powerful might. Really, it's, it's the Holy Spirit through whom God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. It's his mighty right arm. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the guarantee of a spiritual resurrection for God's people. A dead Jesus cannot send the Holy Spirit into people's hearts. A dead Jesus cannot make you alive. It is the risen Lord Jesus, exalted in power, who gives life to all He chooses. He sends the Spirit into their hearts, brings them all the benefits of His death, burial, and resurrection. It is the risen Lord Jesus who now sends the Spirit into souls, dead souls, making them alive. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, all of God's people are resurrected to new life. Jesus' resurrection guaranteed ours. So, as we come to the Lord's table, what's the point of all this? Next week, we're going to look at these verses again and see what baptism has to do with it. But what's the point? The point is that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again that His people would be made dead to sin. God's grace is given to us in Jesus Christ and His grace transforms us so that our relationship to sin has changed. It no longer reigns in our hearts. Dear Christian, if you are a Christian, you are dead to sin. Oh, fellow believers, don't play the wimp towards sin. Don't roll over whenever some temptation gives your, comes your way. Christ is in you. He is more precious and more powerful than any sin. And what's more, since Christ has now given you a heart that can love goodness and virtue and peace and humility, run after those things. Christ died that you would be able to run after those things. Run after them. We'll finish up next week. Pray with me as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray.